Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and this week we're joined by Shuli Galili, founding partner of UpWest, an early stage firm founded in 2012 to invest in seed stage founders from Israel that are seeking to expand into the U.S. Ten years into its life, the firm now has four funds under management and has invested in nearly 100 companies that collectively have a market cap of over $20 billion. We really think you'll enjoy our conversation with Shuli. And with that, let's get right into the episode. This episode is being brought to you by Grasshopper Bank. Privately owned and headquartered in New York City, Grasshopper Bank is built to serve the business and innovation economy. As a client-first digital bank, Grasshopper combines technology and years of industry expertise to provide clients with the best-in-class banking experience. Grasshopper's digital solutions are tailored for venture capital and private equity firms, startups, and small businesses. In addition, they also work closely with fintech-focused banking-as-a-service and commercial API banking platforms. Serving clients globally, Grasshopper provides flexible, firm-focused lending solutions as well as dedicated relationship managers committed to meeting the unique needs of funds and companies alike. Grasshopper is a member of the FDIC and an equal housing lender. For more information, visit the bank's website at www.grasshopper.bank or follow on LinkedIn and Twitter. Samir Kaji is the CEO and co-founder of Allocate. Allocate and Venture Unlocked are independent of each other. Any statements or references made by Samir or his guests regarding third parties, investments, or securities are solely their views and opinions and are not intended as investment advice or an endorsement of such parties or securities by Samir, his guests, or Allocate. Allocate or its clients may maintain relationships with or investment positions in guests, third parties, or securities mentioned in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Hey, Shuli. It's so great to see you. Hi. Hi, Samir. Awesome to be here. It's awesome to have you. And we're sitting here 10 years into the life of UpWest, and I'm excited to take a, a look back. But maybe a good place to start is the origin story and what inspired UpWest nearly 10 years ago. Myself and my partner, Gil, uh, started up West here in Silicon Valley um, in 2012. This was following, I would say for me, a journey of more than a decade uh, running kind of the gateway organization for business and tech collaboration between Israel and California. That was the California-Israel Chamber of Commerce. I helped start the organization in the year 2000. That was kind of also a very interesting year here. During those 10 years uh, of working across so many sectors, so many different verticals, finding partnerships and kind of piecing together uh, the opportunity for uh, collaboration on innovation and technology between Israel and California, I found so many interesting points of, of connections, but also I found a lot of gaps that existed in both ecosystems. So I was here pretty entrenched in the Silicon Valley and California uh, tech ecosystem. I got to really learn from some of the best people who were, you know, serving as members of the organization that I was leading. And then I found that there was so much opportunity for uh, big tech companies here venture capitalists, tech influencers, um, everyone that was looking for amazing innovation, um, I found that there was 
unbelievable opportunity for them to find it in Israel. And obviously, during those 10 years, brought billions of dollars into the Israeli tech ecosystem through venture capital, through the LPs and pension funds in California. What, what, what I realized being in that position and having a bird's eye view of the two ecosystems is that it doesn't really matter how much capital I bring into that ecosystem. The gap for the average Israeli founder existed in, his, in the distance he or she had from their market, meaning the lack of context of who they sell to, the lack of context of the size of their market, the lack of context of how to access that market kept coming back every time I initiated a lot of uh, work around uh, certain founders and spent a lot of time thinking through it and trying to kind of reverse engineering of how I can take founders out of Israel to get entrenched in in the U.S. and finding their way to market. Uh, That's how I, you know, partnered with Gil and found Gil in 2006. Well, he was an executive at Yahoo uh, doing corporate development work. He spent a lot of time also trying to understand how is it that we can level the playing field for Israeli founders, primarily not through capital, but through market access opportunities. And so AppWest was for us First and foremost, you know, an opportunity to create a platform that will allow Israeli founders to, at the, at the onset of starting a company, really figuring out fast their market. And that was a, a very interesting kind of value proposition at the time. Um, I mean, this, this was, you know, 2012, the gap in the Israeli ecosystem existed also on the pre-seed and seed stage because it did not exist. And most Israeli uh, early stage funds were only doing Series A investments. And so for us to come with a value proposition of, you know, here is the first check and the only check uh, for you to pack your bags and come test your, your market with us, Uh, was a very compelling value proposition. And we spent about a year trying to validate that assumption. Uh, We talked to hundreds of founders before we actually uh, went out there and raised our first fund. Uh, This first fund was our MVP or our test fund to really understand whether or not we have a product market fit and how we approach founders and how we provide the value that we know how to bring them in their market. And also that test fund allowed us to understand whether or not we have what it takes to really build, you know, a venture, a venture firm. And it's not like we woke up one morning and said, hey, let's be venture capitalists. Um, it actually was for us an opportunity to do something unusual, not conventional, contrarian, but with a fund structure that is very familiar and very traditional in terms of how we are going to align ourselves between our LPs and the founders. Um, So that's how UpWest kind of started in 2012. 
I love the framing of thinking about validation and product market fit. Sounds like a portfolio company testing a market before they actually launch. Tell us a little bit about that validation process and what did you actually find from those founders? Because at the pre-seed and seed level, you mentioned the lack of capital available to those founders in Israel because most of the local funders were Series A. And what we know about capital from the US going to areas like that, typically later once companies break out. At those early days, how did those founders even know that hey, we need to take not only this capital, but getting into a market that's not our own is something that's really important at the early stages? Yeah. So, I mean, I think through my work and Gil's work, we, we got to work with a lot of founders that came to market um, too late. And, you know, we were kind of on the receiving end of having to try to help them access customers, venture capital. Uh, when we realized that all the validation that they've done for their initial product was in the local market, was in, in Israel itself, where a lot of changes have to happen later on when they actually go to the U.S. So, you know, we talked to a lot of these founders that, you know, some of them became later, you know, our LPs and some of them became later our advisors, but they were founders of very successful Israeli companies who said, you know, if I had that platform and that small amount of capital to just test early on whether or not, you know, I have, you know, validation, you know, I would definitely take it. And so for, for us, it was enough for us to go out and say, yes, there is something here that we need to, uh, to do. It's on a smaller scale. It's on kind of a very personal platform level work, but, um, but from many founders, it removed friction really fast. They had to think about on their own, financing their, their coming to market, spending time here, you know, trying to really hone on their um, early product during that time, it would have taken them much longer. So we wanted to provide them both um, a platform and the speed they need in order to get to that conclusion and then help them raise the real seed once they're ready for it. Since we're loosely on the topic of fundraising, I want to go back to your first fundraise in 2012, which is only two years divorced from the global financial crisis. Raising a first-time fund is always hard. You were operating under a very different thesis than what LPs were used to seeing for your average seed fund. And I'd love for you to describe that experience of that first raise. And in particular, were there things that you were optimizing for, whether it be speed, size, type of LP? We were fortunate that um, we both had uh, very strong relationships already in the market with a lot of people who knew us from our previous roles versus, uh, you know, for me, you know, at, at the CICC for Gil, it was at Yahoo. What we optimized for is full alignment on our vision because what we set out to do was very unusual. We actually kind of got pushback from some people about, you know, this sounds, you know, kind of a bit of crazy idea that somebody will pack their bags for such a small check to, 
you know, to join you in, in this, in, in this journey, both of you have no venture capital background. I mean, I was not a VC. Gil was not a VC. I worked with a lot of VCs early on and, you know, got to kind of sit on the sidelines watching, you know, the dynamics, their decision-making, their partnerships and how they do things. But we were not, we were not coming from that category at all. So, for these for these LPs to kind of put their bet on us was a big deal for us because you know they had conviction of who we are as people they knew that you know we have execution level that you know they want to you know partner with and they agreed with our vision they fully understood you know why we're doing it and i think this is what we optimized for when we talk to people their level of conviction and how they fully uh, supported us early on. I'm still thinking about it today. Every time I have to back a founder, I'm thinking about my early backers. I'm thinking about my first LPs because they bet on me when I had nothing but a vision and, uh, um, and a PowerPoint. And so... I kind of want to reach that level of conviction every time when I fund uh, a new founder. And, and I remember reading that for the first fund, you had 12 LPs, and I think all of them were non-institutional. So individuals in your network. And a lot of times, you know, when I see people raise capital, as a company, you are looking for value-add funds that can come in. As a GP, though, typically you're just looking for somebody that writes a check. And I find it Interesting that, you know, the folks that you did optimize for were people that actually understood the vision, could help out in some ways. Was there anything above the capital from those initial LPs that really helped launch the company in the early days? So these high net worth individuals that invested in us were themselves founders at some point, were themselves investors and angels, uh, successful angels, I would say. And many of them were operators and they came from the industry. Maybe few of them were kind of on a periphery of the industry, but I think majority of them definitely were people who understood the context, knew what we're set to do. And they liked the fact that, you know, both Gil and I were committed both in terms of our time and capital, you know, into it. So uh, so this was definitely for us a, a big something that really helped us in 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 getting started and knowing that we have a group of of people who believed in in our journey. So lots happened since the origin of the firm ten years ago. Macro economy, the venture market, the evolution of Israel as a startup hub. And Israel in particular has grown so much, both in terms of startup formation as well as large exits. You were in Sentinel One, which is one of the, the largest exits that we've seen coming out of Israel. Within that time frame, I'm sure that there was many inflection points within UpWest. Maybe you can describe some of the biggest inflection points that you saw, whether it be micro or macro in nature and how you've reacted and evolved as a firm? I would say that, you know, the evolution of UpWest, number one, is, uh, is evolution of, of how we kept calibrating ourselves with the market, 
and with how we saw our dynamics with founders. And I think the first inflection point for us happened uh, during fund one, uh, which was a nano fund, which, you know, we could only invest in one round. And when we realized, you know, who we are as, as uh, investors, we're very long-term thinkers and the relationships what we have with the founders is really top of mind and we want it to be there long term. So one of the things that really kind of immediately we realized when we were investing out of fund one is that because we want to be there long term, we need to be able to deploy capital as follow on investors. And for that, we need to raise larger fund. And that was the first inflection point because we had fun doing, you know, what we did in fund one, but then we realized really what really is going to be an incredible way for us to continue and offer value to the founders, continue and be there for them here in the market is also being able to deploy capital in their seed and then later on series A as follow-on investors. That was for us you know, the, the understanding that, you know, we're really long-term into this. And what was the size difference between fund one and fund two? It was uh fund, you know, fund two was almost $10 million fund. So it was like three times the first fund. And so as you started to go larger, presumably you're now having to make different types of decisions, right? You're thinking about how much do you reserve for follow-on? When do you actually make a follow-on? Can you maybe speak to how you had to evolve as a partnership to think through things like portfolio dynamics? And then ultimately, what was the hardest thing from going to just doing the the first checks to now thinking about follow-ons as well? Yeah. And I think, you know, this is also aligned with where the market was heading in terms of size of rounds, you know, that have changed tremendously. And you mentioned Israel. And when I was running the California Israel Chamber of Commerce, we were always so proud when there was like 1 billion in venture capital invested in the country. And here I'm looking at 2021, $25 billion were invested in venture capital in Israel. 73% of it is foreign investment, is is investment that came from, you know, the top guys like Tiger and Insight and, you know, SoftBank and and the likes. But really, as, as a small fund, we were always kind of seeing ourselves as the the underdog of the venture capital uh, when you look at it. And we liked that position because... We were in a place that on one hand, it was important for us to have enough capital that we can deploy smart uh, in a smart way in in early stage and in in pre-seed and seed, but also understanding that money is a commodity and the differentiation of UpWest has to constantly be more than that. And, it, you know, it's, it's about the value, the speed of bringing you to market very early and having the network and the community around to help you as a founder support you through this. 
So despite the fact that we changed fund sizes along the way, and we were very mindful of how we're doing it gradually because we like staying small, because we believe that staying small will allow us to have, you know, great outcome. Despite the fact that we kind of grew, we remained very constant on the foundation of what we felt really keeps us differentiated in the ecosystem and in the eyes of founders. And, and that's where we're doubling down and we kept doubling down on, you know, throughout the 10 years. There's a lot of capital, but, you know, how are you really positioned yourself as a GP um, and how do you position yourself as a fund is really important in, you know, in the context of all this money. And I, I totally agree with that. And if you look back at the 10 year span that we've had, nine of the 10 years that you've been in business, I mean, we've been in one of the hottest macro cycles ever with record low interest rates, so many funds raising, so much capital deployed, and founders of all types had their pick of who to go with. And, you know, to truly differentiate, you had to have some kind of product that continually evolved. And one of the questions I often get from people, from other GPs that are thinking about raising fund sizes is, when do you know you're ready to raise your fund size? What do you need to have in place as a firm to ensure that you're you're still playing in an arena that you can win consistently. And so tell us a little bit about the things that got you comfortable that, hey, we're ready to take bigger ownership in these companies, to take on a bigger part of those rounds, and then ultimately, you know, maintain our proratas when we want to get them. I think that what informed us the most as uh, first check investors, early check investors, and primarily, I would say, in the first years of UpWest, is the relationship and the amount of time we spend with founders during those years. Most important thing for us is to really understand uh, with these founders not only the level of commitment of being market first thinkers, which is very hard for a lot of technical founders. But also, you know, their actions in terms of going to market and whether or not, you know, they've, they are building the kind of infrastructure in order for them to be a global company. And it's very important for us in the early years to see those because that informs us on whether or not, you know, we are considering the follow on investment that informs us in terms of our relationship with the ecosystem around the founders, you know, because a lot of times follow on funding comes from our friends here in, you know, in, in the industry. And so we're lucky that so many great firms have followed our investments in the seed and in the A and later on. So those relationships with follow-on investors have really also informed us a lot, you know, in terms of, you know, the potential of uh, deploying additional uh, money and doubling down on some of our companies. But I would say the most thing that informs us is really our ability to be also on the market side. So our conversations with with customers are con continuously being in the same context as they are and understanding, you know, what are they up against in terms of, uh, of their market. So that is incredible information for us. And then, and then growing, um, I would say 
one of the things that really I learned a lot later on and, and, and also in the early days is that being first check investor, you really have to build a muscle to have high conviction because it's about really having confidence in you taking a lead role in making an investment in a company. And understanding that, you know, I spoke earlier about my own LPs in the early days. I mean, I look at it this way. Again, we're first check investors. That's our strategy. And we're also lead investors and co-lead investors. So in current uh, fund, we do pre-seed and seed. We lead with a check or co-lead with another fund. We're very collaborative in the way that we work. So, you know, we don't take the entire... Round, but we're able to bring in high value investors who are angels, who are other founders, sometimes our own founders, and definitely bringing along some of the seed funds and, and funds that have worked with us over the years to co lead rounds with us, whether they are geographically here in the US or in Israel. When you think about pre seed investing, which has become something a lot of firms are now focusing on is their core area of investment, meaning first check capital, usually pre-revenue, oftentimes even pre-product. You know, the question I often get is, what do people optimize for? Typically, it's team, but sometimes it's other things around a certain thesis, a trend. What do you look at when you're investing in pre-seed? And maybe a good example, since you were the first check in Sentinel-1, what did you optimize? What did you learn from that pre-seed investment? I think that, you know, Sentinel-1 was, was one of our first uh, investments in cybersecurity, actually. And it turned out to be <laughs> a really great investment in cybersecurity and informed us along the way of additional investments in the category. So, you know, we're not cybersecurity experts, but we built conviction in this category together and alongside amazing founders like uh, Tomer Weingarten and Almo Cohen and, you know, the, the founders of CyberX and, and other companies that we're currently funding in the category. But what, I, what we saw in the Sentinel-1 team early on was that, you know, they definitely had a vision of how they're going to dominate a market that was at the time really not interesting in terms of endpoint security. But they had some, you know, they had the technology chops to go and try to do something that is different than the incumbents that were there uh, and that were more legacy. But they didn't know, they didn't, they knew that they didn't know a lot of things, right? Uh, so they had a lot of hypothesis around what customers really would want to see. But, and they were not afraid to go to, I would say, uncharted areas and, 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 um, you know, step outside their, their comfort zone as founders to go into market and say, you know, we're going to do X and uh, we want to talk to you about it. And they talked to everyone. They were so, they were hustlers in that sense. And, but they had a really, really clear vision. They had an incredible narrative around it. Um, and that helped them a lot in, in navigating the early days. And, and I think this is what we really loved about them. They had no product yet, uh, but they very much knew what they wanted to disrupt. 
And then along the way, obviously, you know, with eight years of journey from, you know, with pre-seed to IPO, we've seen the growth and then kind of inflection points that, you know, the company had and that the founders had in kind of growing into category leading company. And, and that was really incredible to watch. Now, pre-seed today, I would say, versus seed, how we look at it as investors and we're a generalist fund. We invest in many categories. What we see is that we divide our investments in two buckets, you know, those emerging markets and emerging categories that, if you will, are underfunded. That would be health tech, ag tech, uh, food tech, industrial 4.0, and all of these, te- all of these technologies that are disrupting the old world or kind of, you know, the new areas. That's where we find, I would say, the best pre-seed opportunities. Because the traditional uh, areas like cybersecurity, data infrastructure, um, and fintech are already well-funded categories. And that's where the traditional VCs are going naturally to put in big checks. And that's where founders typically try to raise kind of a slightly larger seed. So we kind of, you know, we do both um, and we figure out how to put our bets on new areas because we do believe in disrupting those areas, but also continuously to build what we know uh, works well in the categories of enterprise infrastructure and, and B2B software, SaaS. Yeah, you mentioned Sentinel One and, you know, them solving for endpoint security, which at the time was, it was uncertain how big it could be. And you just mentioned a number of things that, you know, speak to really looking at the founder itself and understanding how they see a vision unfolding over time when the market itself is still yet to be fully defined. And I would presume that given there's so much subjectivity at the pre seed level versus later stage investing, there's probably some healthy debates that happen within the partnership. And you and I touched on this right before we got on uh, the podcast of what does a healthy partnership look like? You and Gil have known each other for 15 years, have run the firm together for a decade. Maybe we can start first with decision-making on a deal. And then just more generally, what makes a great partnership within a venture firm? If I look at the number one thing that I would say, get you up in the morning and, you know, and, and excited about what you do is who you do it with, right? I mean, in any job, definitely in venture is having a partner that, or partners that you are fully aligned with, number one, on your vision. And I think that is some, something that, um, is very important. I mean, when I talk to founders about their co-founders, and we know there's a lot of dynamics in the early days, and we've seen co-founders split and not, you know, not finding the full alignment. It's exactly the same in in firms. Is that understanding the, the and being fully aligned on the mission and the vision of what the fund is set to do and And then also, and how to operate it. I mean, I think for us, it was very clear from the beginning that um, we love spending our time at the early stage. We love spending our time with the founders trying to figure out, you know, their 
product market fit. And, you know, if there is anything else, you know, that we have to do in building the firms, we're going to obviously roll our sleeves together and build it together, whether it's the fundraising, the management of the fund, the management of the LPs and the relationships and all of that. But also understanding what's each uh, person's strengths are. You know, I mean, Gil and I came from completely different backgrounds. We're very different people in how we, I would say, communicate to the world or talk to people or, you know, even bring value to founders. You know, we know what each of us is really strong at. We also, in the early days, divided our world geographically. I mean, I had an incredible network in the U.S. of customers and, and, and venture partners and tech um, executives. And this was like my territory. And Gil launched himself fully into figuring out the Israeli ecosystem and spent significant time there. So we were also kind of divided geographically. I would say the decision-making uh, around an investment today is very different than it was before. And I think that is because we each built conviction around certain founders, certain categories, and we bring that to conversations um, in our investment team committee. And we discuss, you know, the kind of pros and cons and how we should go about, you know, moving forward on a deal. But one of us is definitely owning it and taking charge on, you know, figuring out the diligence, you know, continuously building conviction around the market, continuously building conviction around the founders. But it's definitely a decision we're making together. And then how do you reconcile when there is healthy debate about a particular founder or particular deal? Does it have to be consensus or can one partner that feels strongly convicted still do a deal? I would say consensus. And the reason is, is because we spend so much time together um, with founders. We spend a lot, a lot of time, whether it's helping on, you know, getting to the next level of funding for the, for the company or helping them with customers or helping them, you know, solve strategic problems. This is where we all come together around a, a startup. Uh, so it's not only, it's, on, it's not only one of us, but this is the entire firm. So there has to be consensus and uh, and it's really important for us that, you know, we get there. Maybe let's look beyond investment decision-making for a second. You were very fortunate to meet Gil well before you started up West. And my assumption is that you had plenty of time to develop a shared vision, make sure your values aligned. And a lot of firms start off that way. And then over time, the firm grows and there are things that constrain a partnership for a variety of reasons, difference in opinions of how to grow a firm. And we, you and I have both seen so many partnerships dissolve or at, fracture to a certain degree. What have you found to be successful in maintaining this level of continuity and shared vision as you've evolved over the years? I think you have to be an ex excellent communicator. I mean, I think that you need to really communicate clearly the, the the mission the vision the things that really makes um, a firm you know continue to go forward 
to any person that is joining the firm, you know, and I think, you know, we had over the years, the, you know, we were fortunate to add people to UpWest who have been incredible partners to us, incredible uh, employees of, of the firm that have, you know, joined forces with us on the investment side or on the operating side. But there was always a very clear communication of, you know, this is who we are. This is the vision. This is the mission of UpWest. Uh, and these are the guiding principles that guide us in how we operate here and what matters to us, really. What is the thing that matters to you the most as, 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 a, as a person in, in, the, um, in this industry? And I think the, the number one thing that I would say, it's something that a lot of people, especially in the early days, it's a people's business. This is about relationships. And when I speak to even to our founders early on and I tell them, you know, this is about building long-term relationships. I look at the success of UpWest today and I must say that, you know, the one thing that guided us along the way is to build very long-term relationships, not only with the people who were with us in the early days, but even for me, it's people who were with me in my previous life <laughs> and in my previous role. So long-term relationships and how do you build that over time? How do you build trust? How do you build a very authentic uh, communication between you, the people who work in your firm, but also the outside community? is really, really important for um, for GPs and to founders as well. Yeah, it's fun actually going back and, and looking at all these different inflection points in the uh, in the 10-year UpWest journey. And, and I always think about any business, any firm, and you go on this long-term learning agenda. And a lot of those pre- preconceived notions you might have had going in often are proved to be wrong or something that you have to modify in some ways to be uh, successful in the long term. I want to end with this question of if you were to now go back and give your 2012 Shuli self-advice on running a venture firm, what would that advice be? I knew it's a long term and a long game launching into it. I didn't realize how long. (laughs) And I appreciate it now because I think that when when you're starting off wanting to be in this business, you know, and I think for me, I built conviction over time about myself in this, in the context of, of VC. Really, I learned that thinking long-term and really thinking long-term is the number one key to make you really be able to, I would say, you know, run, run the marathon, the marathons that this is. It's, uh, and also appreciate the journey along the way. Re- appreciate every relationship you have along the way and mistakes you've made um, or, you know, successes and small milestones that you were able to achieve. So really understanding that this is a long-term way. Another thing that I think that is very key, not only for emerging managers or early investors, but particularly, I would say, to women in this business is building conviction and high confidence in in what you do is really important. I was fortunate that I've had 
incredible mentors around uh, to help me navigate this beyond just a partnership, but people from venture who are unbelievably generous with their time and wanted to help me in my journey solve, you know, the problems that I needed to solve, you know, along the way. And I would say up until even like two weeks ago that, you know, I called one of the veterans in the business to ask a question about things. They take the call. They want to see you succeed, but you have to reach out and you have to really, really, really be strategic about who can help you with what in this business. And I think not enough women and not enough early stage uh, GPs are doing that, building the mentorship around them in order for them to, to be really successful. And so I would say definitely take that um, as a lesson for younger me. And the final thoughts around this is build an equilibrium between what's right for you what's right for the founders and what's right for your LPs. And don't try to be what you're not in this business. You know, be very true to who we are. If, you're, if, you, if you have high conviction about being early stage, stay there. You know, I mean, there were so many funds uh, in 2021 who all of a sudden started to go later and deploy checks in growth stages. Really understand where you are in this e- ecosystem and build the equilibrium that is right for the founders you back and for the LPs that backed you. And also being able to wake up every morning and look in the mirror and say, yes, this is me and I'm doing what's right for me as well. Yeah. And it's such a great lesson because you're right. We have seen people go out of their comfort zones because the capital was available or they felt that they needed to grow to a size. And oftentimes that meant going out of their comfort or passion zone. You saw late stage investors even go early stage and migrate and, and vice versa. And one thing's, you know, I think pretty consistently in, in the time that I've known you and Gil is that you've stayed really true to your original mission and continue to focus on the areas that you really enjoy and where you can really win in. And it's been amazing to see. Thanks so much for uh, sharing the story and being on today. Thank you so much, Samir. I'm a big fan, you know. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Shuli. To learn more about her or UpWest, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.